Hello and welcome to the Wellington Halton Hills Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Wolf Politico. In this mini-series, we are profiling the people running in the riding of Wellington Halton Hills, which basically surrounds Guelph and has a very unique and different character from our political field here in the Royal City. And on this edition of the podcast, we're going to be talking to Liberal Party candidate Melanie Lang. Fun fact. Wellington Halton Hills as a riding was created in 2004 out of parts from Dufferin Peel Wellington Gray, Guelph Wellington, Halton, and Waterloo Wellington. It's impossible to say that this riding could have previously swung Liberal before 2004, but all of the areas that now make up Wellington Halton Hills have at one time in the last 20 years been part of a riding represented by a Liberal. In this first election, Michael Chong beat Liberal candidate Bruce Hood by a little over four points back in 2004. But since then, Chong has enjoyed a double-digit victory every time, including 63.7% of the vote in the 2011 general election. So he's invulnerable, right? Well, not so fast, because in 2015, the Liberals bounced back, increasing their share of the vote by 20 points. But they lost some momentum in 2019, not by losing ground to Chong, but by losing 8% to the Green Party. The message, though, is that the demographics in Wellington Halton Hills are changing, Exurban areas like Georgetown, Acton, and perhaps even Fergus are seeing an influx of people from Toronto and the areas immediately next to Toronto, people who lean more small-l liberal than people in the rural areas of Wellington, Halton Hills. But is it enough to block Chong from a seventh straight victory? Melanie Lang hopes so. She's the liberal candidate this time for Wellington, Halton Hills. Like Chong, she's a Fergus resident, and like Chong, she spent years working in the business world, except her experience is in marketing and consumer studies, and she has even started her own consultancy that focuses on rural economic development and regional innovation systems. She's also been a board member for the Centre Wellington Community Foundation, 4-H Ontario, and the Guelph Chamber of Commerce. Now she wants to be the first Liberal representative for Wellington Halton Hills, and she's going to talk about getting political on this edition of the podcast. So on this week's edition of the Wellington Halton Hills Politicast, we're joined by Melanie Lang, who will talk about what she thinks her residents care the most about this election, why she will be a good fit for the area, and why she thinks Michael Chong is vulnerable in this election. She will also talk about her family's political past, why she always felt that she was bound for politics, and how the pandemic has changed the way she wanted to campaign. And finally, she will discuss the casual misogyny she's encountered on the campaign trail, the anger directed at her and her party, and how she can defend a government that she had no part in creating. So I caught up with Melanie Lang earlier this week via Zoom. Melanie Lang, thank you so much for joining me this morning. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. Uh, I, I started my talk with your uh, esteemed competition from the Green Party with this same question. Um, you're sitting in a riding where the incumbent has won six elections. Um, I don't think he's gone dip below 45% in any of those elections, but I mean, that is formidable competition. So um, I guess the biggest question for you in this election is how do you beat Michael Chong? Mm, good question. <laughs> <laughs> We've... Uh... We have some ideas. <laughs> um, no, so, and I should just begin by saying too, I mean, being from being a long time Fergus resident, 
Um, we, you know, we know Michael and, and Carrie and, and we know their kids and they're a great family. So this is not about, um, you know, this is not about, you know, a Melanie versus a Michael kind of a strategy <laughs> approach. It really is about um, policy versus policy, views versus views, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean... <sighs> And again, having been been here for so many years, I understand the um, the the loyalty that had that we're seeing right from from over the years. I will say though, um, so my background is uh, like marketing, uh, marketing strategy, um, and so having looked at a lot of the um, shifts and, and developments that we're seeing within the writing over the years, I do feel as though you know this time frame, this you know. T- um, is actually a really, uh, I think, an interesting opportunity to look at, uh, you know, putting my name forward and and believing in myself that I'll be able to win this election. The the growth that we're seeing, um, the people who are moving into this riding, um, you know, they're from outside of the riding, and they are bringing with them um, their own political views and. Um, you know, and, and value systems with them. Um, and uh, yeah, I feel very, very confident in the diversity that we're now starting to see within the writing. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I think that we're going to see a big change. That's part of the, the interesting dynamics going on in Wellington Halton Hills is that it is very exurban, uh, but at the same time, very rural. Um, and, being out on the campaign trail, like, have you noticed that? And is there kind of a big disparagement between those two kind of hemispheres of, of your writing? And, and how do you how do you sort of join those hemispheres together in one common message? So this is probably one of my most favorite topics to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for you. <laughs> That's <listening>. all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> because um, I'm actually doing a PhD right now in world studies, and we are we're looking at this um, uh, continuum, if you want to call it, or this connection between rural and urban. And, um, you know, I just, I just think, I feel very passionate about, about the diversity that we're seeing, not just from a, um, you know, not just from a, uh, a, uh, you know, in terms of various religions and various, um, cultures, but we're also seeing diversity in terms of people who are living from like a rural versus an urban, um, within rural versus urban communities. Now, um, I would say that, you know, part of my, my view on this is look at, look, instead of looking at it as, as being very separate and, and distinct, it's also looking at it as how, like, where's the connection? How can we create inroads between Earl and, and, um, and urban? And so, you know, I feel very passionate about looking at ways in which that we can, for instance, uh, you know, when it comes to rural broadband. So multiple publics have multiple interests. And I was attending a, a webinar about a week or so ago, and Dr. Sarah Epp spoke about that. And I just, that line really stuck with me because um, it is this, th- that couldn't be more true as a representation of this writing. So when I was asked to discuss what my top, you know, priorities were for the campaign for this writing, one of the, one of the uh, items I mentioned was rural broadband. And so it was very interesting to me, the people who 
don't have issues with their broadband. Like that hasn't been their lived experiences. And so right. then they questioned that as a, uh, as an issue. And so my job is just to, you know, to continue to communicate why it's important for the diversity of those who live within the riding, the, the needs of those individuals, um, you know, and also too, uh, the other thing, and I, I'm sure we'll probably get to this and I might be jumping ahead, but <laughs> the other thing to note too is, um, um, you know, when we talk about policy at the federal level, um, that's all, that's all well and good, but until people have, um, until it's impacted them personally, until policy has been implemented in such a way that they're seeing uh, a benefit from that policy, it's going to remain at this very high level, almost theoretical uh, level. And so another thing I think it's very important to address that uh, sense of division between the rural and urban is to look at the multiple layers of government and how they we should all be working together. So policy is, is discussed, is created, is stated at the federal level, and then it needs to be operationalized uh, locally. And so I think it's important that we have local government working alongside, um, you know, um, members, other members, so that they can, you know, have a have a line item on their budget to uh, to to incorporate those uh, those those elements. There's also kind of an element of messaging there, which is your your thing, you know, uh, as a marketer. Um, you can talk about rural broadband and the need for it, um, and that doesn't necessarily click with people who live in urban areas where broadband is very available, but, you know, hating telecoms that works for everybody. Um, the reason why, you know, telecoms aren't, you know, selling broadband and installing broadband in rural areas because it's cheaper and easier to fight for a market share in the GTA than it is to set up in, you know, I don't know, Alora or Minto or, or, or wherever. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's context there, right. That <laughs> it, it, it we, we can all hate telecoms. We can all agree to hate telecoms, for example. <laughs> well, and I think what you also talked about from, um, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to get into the subject in terms of like service providers and that sort of thing, but right. I do know of some rural households that have to have multiple um, you know, internet providers, because some are better with, with Zoom, others, you know, in terms of download speeds and vice versa. So, you know, I think what the pandemic has done, it has shone a light on where the cracks are. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's, it's, it's created uh, more an awareness of where those gaps are. And those gaps are, you know, the gap between rich and poor in terms of being able to afford multiple sources of, of internet service providers so that they can work uh, from home, that their children can learn from home. Um, you know, so there's, uh, there's a number of, number of factors that at play in there. Number of years ago, I was on the board with the um, Center Wellington Community Foundation, and uh, during my time there, we ran um, the Vital Signs um, Initiative, and that I have to say was probably um, such an eye-opening snapshot of a point in time of where the community within Center Wellington was, and that was, you know, access to food. I mentioned the gap between rich and poor, arts and culture. So these are factors that. Um, 
community foundations of Canada, there's a like there's about 13 um, variables uh, that various community foundations can choose to evaluate their communities on. And so, you know, for for that for the for Center Wellington, uh, that part of the riding, you know, they were very much less interested in, in doing that. And so, I, I don't know. I just think for me, it just really drove home the where where the greatest needs were, and also too where the greatest opportunities were. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we've we've let a lot of light into broadband um, and, and internet access, but it, you know, what are kind of what are kind of the other issues you're hearing like that matters to to the people in your area this election? What are they telling you that is important to them? Well, it didn't seem to matter who I'm speaking to across the riding. Um, climate is something that comes up, and I'm and I'm so glad it, that it's that it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, yeah, that is an issue. Absolutely. That's come up, um, time and time again. Um, you know, we're seeing it in terms of, uh, drought. We're seeing it in terms of, I mean, we just have to put our heads up and look what's happening, um, out West to see the, the detriment that's, uh, that climate is having on, uh, on that part of our country. Um, you know, in other areas, looking at, um, the, uh, the draw that we're having in terms of on, uh, you know, providers in terms of, um, uh, you know, buildings in terms of drawing energy for, to, uh, from a cooling system standpoint, you know, as, as cities continue to grow and it becomes more and more of a draw on those just as one, like, you know, simple example. Um, I think what people don't realize is the ripple effect um, in terms of, from a climate standpoint, in terms of people's ability to have a choice. And so I think that's the other thing I think it's important to note is that for people who have um, an ability of uh, spending power uh, or like consumer choice, it's, it's easier for them to purchase products that are aligned with their environmental values, their climate values. And, um, but for people who don't have that purchasing power, um, you know, they're not able to make that choice because they're coming from a, from a place of scarcity, from a, like a strong, strong minimum needs based approach. And so things like, um, you know, basic income, for instance, um, where people are, are able to be lifted up out of poverty, where jobs are created, more spending power, people can then start to choose and make purchases based on their value system rather than on, um, you know, on, on being able to satisfy their, their most basic immediate needs. And then they can't think, they're not able to be, make decisions beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, yes, the, the issues around climate and the investments that the government is making to ensure that we are eliminating inefficient um, environment subsidies, for instance, that those funds that we're seeing from transitioning away from um, uh, away from some of these detrimental um, you know, processes and activities, that those funds are being reinvested into green programs. So that is so important. We have to keep doing that. But there's also other societal implications and that we need to be paying attention to and and be making investment in people and other areas so that they in turn can be contributing to the green movement that we're wanting to see happen across Canada. This kind of gets into something I wanted to ask more generally, but I'll ask it in this very specific area where you're talking about climate change. Uh, Accepting that you have not been a part of the government you are running to join, 
have has the liberal government in the last six years done enough on climate change? Or if you were to join the caucus, would you be pushing for more to be done? Mm-hmm. So I feel like my answer is a yes and answer <laughs> to that. <laughs> um, so um, I think that, um, okay, let me, let me position it this way. Yeah. So anytime that uh, we need to be, we need to be responsive and not reactive and taking a responsive approach means that we are uh, implementing projects, whether it's on a, a piloted, you know, an initial piloted initiative. And it's not to say that pilot programs, pilot programs are not there to say whether or not, you know, there is an issue. The pilot program is in place to know that, like that we are implementing the right model so that we have sustainable long-term, you know, change. And I think that's maybe where some people are getting, are feeling frustrated because that, you know, there's, that takes time. And so I recognize that there are some things that we need to ensure that there's due diligence that's being placed on that so that we can, we can have like a national scaled level implementation strategy for these initiatives. So, but there are, but in, but in saying that there are some other things that we are continuing to invest in, you know, throughout the country, because, you know, coming back to what we were talking about in terms of rural and urban, if you just look at the, just the, the uh, array of communities that exist across Canada, some strategies are better placed than others. And some, some communities, I mean, they know what's best for their communities in terms of what's going to work. And so there's some low hanging fruit that we absolutely can be taking advantage of. But when it comes to like national scale, global scale, I think that's where uh, we need to ensure that the right model the right strategy is being implemented. So for in some cases, there are things that can be done really quickly. In other cases, uh, it needs to be done at a certain pace. And I think that's where we get that push-pull feeling of frustrations for some people. Um, I feel very uh, proud of the uh, of the milestones that have been laid out. I feel very um I feel very, very good that those milestones will be will be met. And in some cases, I think that they'll be uh, will hit them sooner as what we were seeing in the budget um, that was discussed. I mean, from the savings from these green programs and from the the inefficiencies from different um, sectors and industries that were able to be recovered. That is $17.6 billion that is being reinvested into greener programs. So, you know, we're starting to see that compounded momentum start to take place as more and more of that work happens. And what do you say to the people who I think make a valid point? We're not going fast enough. It's hard to argue that um, when you have on the one hand, the IPCC saying, you know, we've got to change on a dime, almost literally saying we've got to change on a dime right this minute. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people obviously granting them that authority and saying like, yes, let's change on a dime to some of the things you're saying. It's like, we can't just, you know, snap our fingers. We have to make sure that we're, we're the the direction we're going in is, is the right direction. Um, And and sort of test that as we go. How do you answer the people who want to go fast, who want to go faster and maybe not (laughs) are less concerned with immediate results? Yeah, no, no. You know what, like, I empathize with that, because they're, like, even from my own personal stand, like, you know, having reviewed certain things, I'm like, oh, like you do you just like, that's our, our, you know, our initial reactive selves wants to just do everything that we possibly can. Um, 
but is that always <clears throat> our reactive selves shouldn't always be in the driver's seat. And I, you know, this is, you know, myself lived, learned experiences too, in terms of that. Um, I would, so, so my, my thoughts on that, and this has been some of the conversations I've had with people, it's like, and you know, that's an awesome opportunity to actually hear from them in terms of, okay, well, where else do you see that there's change that can happen? Like how, how else can that be? And so when you start to involve um, these different interests and different, different thought processes, I mean, that's where, I mean, essentially that's how policy is created. It's a, it's a fluid evolutionary process. I mean, and, and so getting, getting people around the table to have opinions and to help influence decisions. I mean, that's why I put my name for it. I want to be part of those conversations. And there are some really rich discussions that have happened already that I've been a part of, and I want to take those ideals forward. And we have not been represented at the table for about seven years now. You know, we have not, that our writing has not been within caucus as part of that decision-making round table. I want to seat at that table so that we can start um, seeing the benefits of, of that work, of that good work happen here. Mm-hmm. People just want to be heard sometimes. And, and as they should, right? Yeah. And as they should. Yeah, for sure. How has, I mean, I'm not sure ex- exactly at what point you made a decision. Maybe you can lend some light on that to, to sort of put your name for something in a cabinet. But um, how has the pandemic sort of changed your idea of what polit- being a politician is? And, and how has that changed? Like, uh, how you would run this race if there was no pandemic at all? <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, boy, Adam, that's a... That's a loaded question. Um, So I guess I would start by saying that this is something I've always wanted to do. Okay, so it's not because of the pandemic, the pandemic that I've decided, maybe from a timing standpoint, perhaps, but this has always been a personal goal of mine. And it comes from, you know, my my father was a long multiple term mayor, counselor, he ran for MP, my father in law as well was a multiple term mayor, counselor. So public service, community engagement has been part of my uh, growing up, it's been part of my life, it's how we raised our kids to have that um, heart, you know, heart of service. Um, and so, you know, with that, when the opportunity came forward, um, you know, they asked me if I would consider letting my name stand. Um, I just, I did think long and hard about it, you know, timing, cause you know, is this the right time to, to do that? Um, so, but obviously I came to the conclusion that it is the right time to do that. And I'm glad I did. Um, I think because of the pandemic, I, I am seeing the, um, the, the uncomfortableness that everyone is experiencing. Um, the, um, the, the need of people within the writing. Um, we need to continue with, um, you know, we need to continue with the good work that's already been started plus adding in additional, um, you know, programming and investments where, again, like the pandemic has shone a light on where, uh, you know, where the greatest needs are. So looking at $10 a day childcare as an example of this, mm. um, when the pandemic hit, you know, people were, were like thrown into chaos, you know, having to figure out childcare, having to figure out, you know, like there were people who were not able to work from home. Right. So mm-hmm. that's the other thing too. people is there is a lot of people who just assumed, well, everybody just went home and work from home. 
No, <laughs> there were so many people who still had to go to work and like leave their home. And, and like, what do, what did those individuals have to do for childcare? So they were, many families were, were faced with a very difficult decision. I either have to place my child in care that I maybe, I don't know fully about, I don't trust or I'm uncomfortable with, or they leave the workforce. And so, you know, that is um, like, that can't happen. And so what's happening, what we're seeing now is women are, they left the workforce in droves. They, so $10 a day daycare is a way to allow them to, um, to, to put their foot back into the workforce. And these are, these are like, these are, you know, I, I, I don't want people to stereotype either about the types of jobs that certain people had, uh, or, or didn't have, or whatever case, like, this is across industry, across sectors. We saw women's like, like leave their jobs in droves. Okay. Because they felt as though they had a responsibility to their family and they couldn't manage the, the, um, uh, the, the draws of, of both the responsibility across both. It became too much for their own mental health. Um, and that was just in their, their physical health as well. Many, many did suffer visit like, um, uh, ailments and that were that were created as a result of that. So another thing too, just it is uh, it's not just about the availability of care, but it's about the standardized level of care. So mm-hmm. the ten dollar a day subsidized program is to support more uh, home based daycare programs that are regulated, they're standardized, they're educational programs, food programs within there. And these are these are ways in which that, and also too, like within their own community. So many times families were having to drive to, you know, outside, like out, you know, out of their way to drop their kids off to daycare. They felt they needed to stay there because maybe the price was right for their families, even though it was probably still costing $35, $45 per child per day and then drive in the opposite direction. They'd find a daycare spot near where they work, but it's $60 a day per, per child. So, you know, so this is, this, is a, this is a strain that's been happening for a very, very long time, but the pandemic has highlighted where the greatest need is and that it is such, such an important, uh, uh, an important issue. This kind of segues into what I wanted, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is um, anyone who's sort of, been watching the coverage in in your area knows that uh, your your election signs seem to have been particularly and rather harshly targeted for vandalism. Um, to what are you kind of attributing that to? Because you're the challenger in this race um, again, and it seems to speak to this this kind of thing where it's like you you're you're the representative of the government and you're riding, although you've not been a representative in government. But I mean, how do you how do you approach that anger and maybe try and untangle it a bit, like try to cool down that temperature anger against you for, for being a liberal, not being a member of the government and maybe people's anger about the, the pandemic in general. Um, so I've done a lot of work over the years on like design thinking, human centered design, and the principles behind that require you to, go to what the root cause of the issues are, right? Like unpack problems. So instead of focusing on outcomes and symptoms, gonna get to the root cause. So my uh, view on this is this is a fear-based reaction. People are afraid. There, mm-hmm. uh, There's a lot of uncertainty right now. And as a result, they're behaving unskillfully. 
They are taking it out on my signs. Um, and they're like, they're taking it out on me. I've had uh, lots of folks um, express their, uh, their thoughts, their opinions to me. Um, and even going to the door, people, um, it, it's mixed. And I know that there's been some mixed reviews of, uh, you know, who's, do, who's doing this, um, who is um, contributing to, uh, like, who's, the, who's behind this? Um, are they doing it because I'm a liberal? Are they doing it because I'm a female candidate? Um, you know, those, those sorts of things. Uh, I do think it's both. I do think it's both. I've had some people who've said to me, um, I'm surprised your husband gave you permission for this. Uh, how, like, how is your husband going to manage you doing this? Your poor family. I've also had it on the side of the party, like the, those who are attacking the party, um, as you know, as well, uh, people saying that they will slap my face if I show up at their door wearing a mask. Mm. Um, so yeah, like it's, it's right. So it's, it's, it's all of the above. It's all of the above. I went into this eyes wide open. So I am not surprised that this is, I shouldn't say, I'm going to retract that for just a second. Okay. I am disappointed that it's happening at the rate and the scale that it is. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned, you know, our family is, you know, come, I come from a, a, like a political family, an involved community family. So election signs getting, getting, you know, vandalized, that happens, right? So when I first heard that it had happened, I was like, I was expecting that, right? So that didn't, didn't kind of phase me or anything like that. The fact that we have had, um, we've had the, a number of signs uh, that we, we've had like over 70 large signs um, destroyed, including, and then that doesn't include the number of long, like smaller long signs. We've had people who have reached out to, uh, to the office asking for their signs to, if, we, if they could give it back, they say they, we're still going to vote liberal, but we just don't want the sign on our lawn because we are feeling targeted. Right. Like, come on, you know, like that. <sighs> that's not okay. Like, that's really not okay. People weren't able to see because this is an audio podcast, but my eyes almost literally fell out of their head when you're talking about people asking you if you have your husband's permission to run. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> uh, I don't know too many women in my life who would seek permission of the man to do what they wanted, but <laughs> it is the year 2021. Well, um, and, and you know, what like so here so here's the other side too like if if my husband wanted to to put his name forward we would have had a family meeting about it sure I wanted to put my name forward we had a family meeting about it and everybody in our family said go for it right so like it's not about it's really yeah anyway we <laughs> I don't want to take us into another another direction so I won't bother but um but you know like even things like I put a video up yesterday of of uh my sentiments about uh about you know what I was um what I was on the receiving end of and again the the uh the rebuttal Mm. Uh, and anytime you put yourself out there, you gotta be, you gotta, you gotta expect the rebuttal. So, you know, it's, it's come back pretty mixed as well. And, um, but I have talked to female candidates across Canada mm. and I've had more conversations with female liberal candidates, but I've had conversations with female candidates 
And there is, uh, there are female candidates that are being attacked by, uh, by people who don't support them running for office. Um, there are more female liberal candidates being attacked, uh, mm-hmm. because they don't support the party that they're running for, with. Right. So, I mean, either way, yeah, it's, it's not cool. <laughs> no, it's not cool. It's, it's definitely not cool. So let's talk about the politics. Um, I think it's safe. To, I mean, it's kind of jumping off that topic. I mean, the illegitimate anger and the misogyny is one thing, but I mean, I think there is also a lot of legitimate anger about what Tr- Justin Trudeau has done and what he has not done as prime minister. Mm-hmm. So how do you win back like the people who sort of have legitimate grievances with the liberals and perhaps were liberal voters of the past, but for whatever reason, whether it was climate change mm-hmm. or electoral reform or whatever, how do you win those people back? And then more generally, what do you think when undecided Wellington Halton Hills voters are going to the polls? What do you think the deal maker or breaker is when, when they're mm-hmm. casting their ballots? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, good question, Adam. So, I mean, I would say um, as a country, we were in crisis. Mm. We were in crisis and there needed to be immediate um response to that crisis and some of the critics that i have spoke to in terms of how some of those were were handled um you know for instance uh when it came to um when it came to subsidy programs to support those who were out of the workforce so critiques are saying there should have been a uh a rubric and evaluative process put in place before we just blanketed uh that the thing that we did not have in our favor was time. Mm. So we, if we needed to go through the, the process of creating an evaluative framework uh, for an across Canada, like measures and metrics from across Canada, that would, we would still be trying to create that right now. Right. So we did not, that, that, that was not, um, we did not have the privilege of time on our side to do that. So decisions were made, investments were made in like into Canadians to do what we, what was felt was best for Canadians. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, you know, Dr. Sarah Eap's line is going to forever be imprinted in my mind, multiple publics, multiple interests. And when you're trying to do something for the greater good, it's a, you're going to end up with a blanketed approach because that is what is felt as the right decision for the majority of people. Uh, and so that's that's the space that we find ourselves in right now. Mm-hmm. And um, and so my response to to those who are critiquing um, those those uh, those spendings is to look at it and, and to say, you know what, the government invested in Canadians, you know, and it's and it is hard to say what, um, you know, if a different party had been in, in, in government, like what what their decisions would have been. I don't think it's fair to say one is better than the other. I think it would have been different, like they would have been different approaches. Um, but uh, I I feel good that the government was responsive and they did what they felt was needed to ensure the Canadian that Canadians felt uh, cared for, that their health was put as a they their you know health before um, before uh, profit. And I think we can all feel very good about that decision. I mean, it's also in a way it's tough to say what the long term effects are because we are technically still in the pandemic. Yeah, it's it's not yeah. over. No, 
No. And I think that's all the more reason why we need to carry forward, right? We need to stay the course so that we can see this through so that the, the uh, um, other investments, the planned investments and spending and allocation and, and uh, programs that have been to help us come out on the other side of this pandemic. So those programs have, you know, have been created to work alongside the decisions that have already been made. And so we need to see this through. Well, now it's time for the toughest, most essential question of, of the interview. Uh, I'm nervous. What? How, can, <laughs> how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your campaign? Oh, oh that. Okay. <laughs> So um, there's a couple of ways, actually. So we have a campaign office. So if you wanted to stop in, we're located at 140 St. George Street in Georgetown. Um, you can call our office at any time. Our number there is 1-855-799-7004. You can send me an email, melanie at melanielang.ca. Um, follow me on social. I'm on social media. If you just look up Melanie Lang. Um, you'll find me, um, we, uh, we are updating that like really like quite regularly and, uh, you know, any information about, uh, policies and programs. And if you just want to kind of know where I am on a day-to-day basis, I mean, follow along for more of those details. Um, but I, I really would encourage people to reach out to, um, to, you know, I'd love to hear from you. What are some issues that you're feeling that you don't, uh, you know, so that you feel heard? Um, and, uh, and I want to, I want to hear from you. Perfect. Well, Melanie Lang, thank you so much for all your time today. And we're, uh, we're glad we got this chance to hear from you. <laughs> Adam, thank you so much for having me. I really, I really enjoyed it. And once again, that was Melanie Lang. To learn more about her campaign, you can go to melanielang.liberal.ca. And to hear interviews with Guelph's election candidates, you will have to tune in to Open Sources Guelph, Thursdays at 5 p.m. on CFRU, or you can download the podcast version on Monday. You can hear the interview with Animal Protection Party candidate Karen Levinson with bonus material on this Monday's podcast version of OSG. And this coming Thursday on CFRU, you will hear interviews with Green Party candidate Michelle Bowman and NDP candidate Aisha Jonjir. And that is it for this edition of the Wellington Halton Hills Politicast. The music for the Wellington Halton Hills Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can certainly get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time.